Welcome to Leading from Behind, a podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number 10, Small Signs of Change in First Sessions. Well, thank you for joining me once again here on Leading from Behind, the solution-focused therapy podcast. In previous episodes, we've been following the process, questions, and skills used in first sessions. And we're almost at the point now where the solution-focused therapist takes a break to construct end-of-session feedback for the client. But before we do that, we have one last subject to address, exploring the client's ideas about the next small sign of change. So in this episode, we'll look at how and why we do this in a first session. Now, in the resource segment that closes this episode, I'm going to identify two introductory articles about solution-focused therapy that can be easily accessed on the web and might be of interest to those who are unfamiliar with the approach. So once again, thanks for dropping in, and I hope you'll find this episode useful in developing your skills in solution-focused therapy. As we near the end of a first session in solution-focused therapy, and as mentioned, just before we take a break to prepare some direct feedback for the client, we want to inquire about the client's ideas about small signs of change. Now, generally, we recognize the opportunity to do this when we have already achieved the following in a first session. We have a clear description of the client's preferred future. We've heard about exceptions, times when the client's preferred future has already occurred, even in some small way. And finally, through the use of a scaling question, we have an understanding of where the client sees himself in relation to his preferred future. Now, before we go further in this discussion, it's important to underline that in solution-focused therapy, we're interested in the client's ideas about the next small sign of change, or how the client will notice that small change has occurred. This, of course, is very different than asking about what the client must do or has to do to achieve some small level of change. Also, we're not asking about the next small step that the client should, must, or have to take. This is a very simple yet important distinction to make. However, it's one of the most common misunderstandings experienced by new practitioners of solution-focused therapy. Now, as you can appreciate, the difference between these two types of questions are quite significant. If I ask you as the client, for example, what's the next step you have to take to move from a 6 to perhaps a 6.5 or a 7 on our scale of 1 to 10, the implications of the question might be as follows. First, there's an expectation of a very specific action in mind. There's an inference that you'll be expected to do this specific action. And finally, there's an assumption that you're up for doing it. However, if I ask you instead... What would be the next small sign that you were moving up on this scale even just a little bit? Or, what might you notice that told you things were a little bit better? The implications are quite different. First, I've left you with a much broader range of possibilities that may or may not include you doing something that results in the change. Second, there's nothing inherent in the question that suggests an expectation of doing something. And finally, there's no assumption that you're up for doing whatever it is you might notice. Now, you might wonder, if we're not specifically negotiating some kind of small step towards the client's desired outcome, why would we even ask about a small sign of change? Well, again, the answer lies in our position of leading from behind. 
and in the assumptions and beliefs that support solution-focused practice. So first, in responding to the question, the client, once again, is able to hear the sound of her own voice. Since we believe that clients have expertise about their own lives and that change is constant and inevitable, we trust that the client will decide whether this small sign of change is something they might decide to do or not in the coming days or weeks. Finally, since we hold the assumption that small change leads to larger change, this question simply invites our clients to begin thinking about change in this way. Now, to continue our discussion about the client's ideas about next small signs of change, let's return to our ongoing case example. If you've been following along in previous episodes, our client is a young woman named Rachel. We've heard a number of details about her preferred future and some exceptions that have already occurred. In responding to a scaling question about where she saw herself in relation to her preferred future, she put herself at a 6 on a scale of 1 to 10. So, in asking Rachel about the next small sign of change, we can phrase the question in a number of different ways. For example, we can link it to the scaling question by asking, so what would be the next small sign that you were moving up on this scale? Or, how would you notice that you were moving up even just a little on this scale? Or perhaps even more specifically, we could ask, so suppose you had moved up to a 6.5 or even a 7, how would you notice this? Finally, we can ask the question without linking it to the scaling question. We would simply ask, what would be the next small sign that things were getting better for you? Or, how would you notice that things were a little bit better? Either way, the key is in specifying small change and that it would be represented by a sign or something the client would notice. So, in our case example, here's how I ask the question to Rachel. Now, from your perspective, Rachel, what might be the next small but meaningful sign that you were moving up on this scale, even just a little? I guess it really starts in the morning. You know, if I was getting myself going in the morning, you know, having a good breakfast and making a lunch, and if I could keep that going every day, that would be good. Now, Rachel's reply seems reasonable. But it's common for us as human beings to have high expectations of ourselves. So if you, as the counselor, have a sense that the client's response might represent a bigger change, then it's important to clarify. And would that be a big sign or a small sign? Well, if I was doing it every morning, that would be a big sign. And so a smaller sign might be? Well, even a couple of days in a row would be a start. Obviously, clarifying with the client about the actual size of this change can be useful, as in this case, Rachel was able to identify something more achievable, even though, again, we have no expectation that this is something that she'll be doing following the session. Now, it can be useful to follow up the client's response to the question about a small sign of change by asking a further question that would amplify her response. Of course, this isn't always necessary, especially if the small sign of change is something already mentioned and amplified during the discussion of the client's preferred future. Nevertheless, here's an example of how I might amplify the difference it would make for Rachel if or when this small change took place. And what good things might come from that? Well, like I said before, that gets my day going better. And maybe more is possible after that. Now, in asking about the next small sign of change, it's important to also note that, similar to our efforts in exploring the client's preferred future, we're looking for something that reflects the presence of something rather than the absence of something. 
As well, we're interested in hearing about a small change that's realistic, specific, behavioral, and achievable. Ideally, we're also interested in hearing about something that involves some kind of effort on the client's part. So, of course, it's always possible that the client will respond to the question by identifying how someone else might do something or something external to the client might change. So, for example, Rachel might say that her partner Alex might show her more physical affection as the next small sign of change. In these instances, it generally isn't useful to reject the response and clarify that we're looking for something the client has explicit control over. Instead, we can simply amplify the difference this might make to the client and, perhaps more important, ask how they might react or respond as a result. Hypothetically, then, Rachel might reply by noting how she would reciprocate these acts of affection or how she might do something else that represented a positive movement in the relationship. Either would be considered sufficient in inviting her to hear the sound of her own voice about something small that might represent a move toward her preferred future. Now, it's also possible that a client can respond to this question about a small sign of change by identifying a feeling. And again, our challenge as the counselor or therapist is to invite some behavioral detail. So if Rachel replied by saying that she might notice that she would have a bit more energy, we would endeavor to deconstruct this word by asking how this small increase in energy might show up. Or we might ask what this small increase in energy might lead her to do. Finally, it's also reasonable to expect that our client can respond to the question about a next small sign of change by saying, I don't know. Again, we might ask the client for her best guess or some of the other I don't know strategies we identified in episode 6. And of course, one of these strategies might be to utilize a relationship question. So with Rachel, we could ask, so if your partner Alex was here right now, what might he say he would notice that might tell him that you had moved up even a little bit on this scale? Alternatively, we could ask about a small sign of change observed by her co-workers or even her boss that would suggest a movement in a better direction. So asking about the client's ideas about a small sign of change typically represents one of the final questions we ask in a first session in solution-focused therapy. The question itself is founded on our belief that change is more likely to occur in small ways and on the basis that small change leads to larger change. And finally, by inviting the client to talk out loud about some kind of small movement forward, the question illustrates yet again another way that we lead from behind in solution-focused practice. The resource segment on the podcast in this episode was inspired by a recent question on the International Solution Focus Therapy listserv. Someone asked if there was a particular article that might be a useful one as a means of introducing someone to solution focus therapy. And among the responses, there were two articles that we would certainly recognize as being very useful ones, and they also both happen to be freely available on the web. The first one was written by Chris Iveson from Brief, the Solution Focus Training Institute in London, England, we've mentioned on several occasions in this podcast. Entitled simply Solution Focus Brief Therapy, the article was published in a UK journal, Advances in Psychiatric Treatment, in 2002. The article is a very useful one because it provides a very brief and simple description of solution focus therapy. Now, to access the article, you can go to the link that we've put on the podcast page of our website at hbtc.ca. 
Now, the second noteworthy article that would serve as a good basic introduction to solution-focused therapy can be found on the Solution-Focused Brief Therapy Association's website at sfbta.org. The article is entitled Solution-Focused Therapy Treatment Manual for Working with Individuals. It was written in 2010 by the Research Committee of the SFBTA. Contributors to the article included Terry Trepper, Eric McCollum, Peter DeYoung, Harry Corman, Wallace Gingrich, and Cynthia Franklin. It's a longer article than the first one mentioned, but provides a strong overview of the elements of the approach, an overview of its history, as well as providing some brief comparisons to other approaches. Again, this is an article that would be well worth it for new practitioners, as well as a good introduction if you wanted to present the approach to someone else. Now, you can find the link to this article by going to the Solution Focus Brief Therapy Association's research page at sfbta.org. So, we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you again for joining me. In our next episode, episode number 11, we'll talk about concluding the formal conversation with the client in a first session in solution-focused therapy in order to take a break and begin constructing the end-of-session feedback. The end-of-session feedback is another important and unique element of solution-focused therapy, so we'll be looking at it in some detail over the next two episodes. Now, in closing, if the Leading From Behind podcast has been helpful in your practice, please feel free to let us know. Or if there's something you think we could do or do differently that would help in your understanding of solution-focused therapy, again, don't hesitate to get in touch. Comments or questions can be left on the Leading From Behind podcast page of our website at hbtc.ca, or you can send an email to feedback at hbtc.ca. Again, as a reminder, new episodes of Leading From Behind are available on or about the 15th and 30th of each month. You can also subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. Follow the link on the podcast page at hbtc.ca to access the free subscription, or look for us in the iTunes store in the training subcategory of the education section. Finally, thanks once again to my colleague Debbie Van Horn for her assistance with our case example, and of course Dano from danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under Creative Commons license. So you've been listening to Leading From Behind, the Solution-Focused Therapy Podcast, episode number 10. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I hope you'll join us again.